Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola and I'll be hosting the show. Every week you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. Hello and welcome to episode four, part two of COVID-19 The Answers, featuring our bonus episode, COVID Vaccination for Children. I'd like to welcome Professor Melissa Stockwell. Professor Stockwell is Chief of Division of Child and Adolescent Health and an Associate Professor of Paediatrics and Population and Family Health at Vaglos College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University in the USA. She's founding director of the Department of Pediatrics Center for Children's Digital Health Research and medical director of the New York Presbyterian Hospital Immunization Registry or ESVAC and co-director of the Columbia University Primary Care Clinician Research Fellowship in Community Health. Additionally, she is a pediatrician in a New York Presbyterian Hospital Associated Community Clinic. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. We have a limited amount of time with you today, so I'm going to jump straight into the questions I have for you. Oftentimes, civilized society is measured by how we treat our most vulnerable, our youngest and oldest people. At the beginning of the pandemic, our older population was decimated by COVID and the youngest were barely touched. We are now experiencing a reversal of this trend. I want to share some evidence-based data to support this. As we review the data, please keep in mind that children are defined as less than 18 years old. Worldwide, the Omicron variant was seen, has seen a rise in infections and hospitalizations of children, particularly those under the age of five years. In the US, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 12.3 million children have tested positive for COVID-19 since the onset of the pandemic and 2.9 million of those have been added during the Omicron wave. Children now account for 22% of weekly COVID cases in the US, whereas at the beginning of the pandemic, they accounted for just 2-3% to of weekly cases. For the week ending the 20th of January 2022, just over 1 million children tested positive for COVID-19 in the USA alone. 17% of US children have had COVID-19 to date. At the peak of the Omicron wave in the US, 881 children were admitted to hospital daily. The largest increase was for children under four who at present cannot be vaccinated. And in addition, two to three children died daily. These are staggering statistics. So Melissa, at the beginning of the pandemic, Even prior to the development of vaccines, children were not getting sick to the degree they have with the Delta and Omicron Omicron variants. What is happening in their immune systems or the coronavirus to drive this change? Um, I think it's actually less about the the virus and the kids and more about society. So I think in the beginning, there was this kind of misperception that children couldn't get sick or wouldn't get sick. And the American County Pediatrics as you stated in your statistics, has really been trying to ring that bell and every week does put, has, you know, for now more than a year has been putting out these stats every week to really say, you know, children can get infected and do get infected and, and you know, some of them can, can get quite ill. 
I think it's in the very beginning of the pandemic, everyone's sheltered in place. And so the kids really weren't out in the world. Um, and then as they kind of emerged and went back to school, you know, at first they were remote and they were hybrid and they were in person and they've gone, started to go back into their, their daily life, they have been infected the same as, as adults. Um, and so to me, I think it, that's really more the, the rise that we're seeing. And that also happened at a time that we had more um, infectious variants, right? So Delta was particularly infectious and Omicron has lifted that to another level. And now the new variant, you know, will be even more. So um, I think it, it, it's part of the dovetailing of the time and partly kind of re, re-entry into society of children. All right. Thank you for that excellent answer. Um, the rate of hospitalization among unvac- unvaccinated children over 12 was six times that of vaccinated children. Hospitalizing children is commonly an option of last resort due to the traumatic experience for children. As a paediatrician, could you please share with the audience some of your experiences of the suffering of children hospitalized with COVID-19 and contrast that to the experience an adult would endure? So I think, um, so I'm, I'm primarily outpatient, but I can kind of share what my colleagues have um, have seen inpatient. I think it's, it, you know, it's hard when anyone gets hospitalized, and it's particularly hard for, for a parent and a child. I can say my children are a little bit older, but when one of my sons was younger, we ended up in the ER twice with respiratory infections. And there's there's nothing scarier than watching your child have trouble breathing and you know feeling like um, you know you you wish you could be there instead of them, that you wish that you could trade places with them. And so um, I think for the kids themselves, it's you know it's it, they're it, not at home. There there's lots of machines that are beeping. There's lots of going on. There are people coming in all of the time, and it, it, it's very hard for them it's hard for their families and their parents and and we as you said really do everything we can to try um and keep kids out of out of the hospital but there are definitely children who do need to to be admitted and really supported um supported through the infection i would say that and i know we're going to get to vaccination that, that that's one of the things that is really important vaccination is really to try it and decrease the severity of illness and really decrease the number of children who do end up in the hospital because of infection indeed As of the 25th of February, um, 2022, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 57.4% of 12 to 17 year olds and 25.3% of children ages five to 11 are fully vaccinated in the USA. Why do you think there is such a poor uptake of vaccination in children? What do you think are the main drivers for parental hesitancy? And I think this is something that we we all would 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 love to to be able to solve. I think there there are a lot of models for vaccine hesitancy. I think one of the kind of clearest ones is the WHO has a model called the three C's. And I think it it um it is something that's kind of easy for us all to wrap our head around. So ultimately, uh, there's sort of one of the C's is, is complacency. So you have to believe that your child's at risk of COVID and that COVID can be dangerous. So if you think that your child can't get COVID or you think that if they do, they'll be fine. And the fact is most children are fine, but not every child. And we're trying to prevent, you know, we, we can't predict which child is going to be the child, you know, who will have a severe complication necessarily. So there's that kind of piece. Then there's the confidence. So do you do you trust the vaccine? And we know that um, vaccinations become very political in 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 um, in some ways, and and the trust of public health systems has really been eroded. You know, during the, the last number of years. Um, and so do you trust that it's effective? Do you trust that it's safe? And then there's the convenience part. You know, if you do want to get it, can you get it? 
luckily, actually, that that has really played less of a role right now with COVID vaccine. There is an abundance of vaccine that wasn't in the beginning. But if there is a family who wants to be vaccinated, there are, for the most part, lots of places to be able to go. And I think actually the government's done a really great job of having, um, you know, in pharmacies and, and vaccination sites, the next iteration of that, which is really um, what we're working on now, is to get it into the, the primary care sites, um, into the hands of the physicians and nurse practitioners and the, and the group that those, that those, that those um, families really trust. So you can come and have that conversation with your child health care provider and get vaccinated right on, on site. So I think that's where we, you know, as society have really moved to, because it, it's those one-on-one conversations to really um, talk with families about vaccination is, is I think how we're going to kind of slowly move that, that needle um, to, <laughs> to be able to um, get more people, people vaccinated. Thank you. And yeah, I think I can endorse that. I'm I'm a community phys- physician mm-hmm. too. And right. when I listen to my patients and give them a chance to air their their concerns, I often I'm often quite successful in persuading them to get vaccinated. So that's really exciting that that's going to be rolling out. One of the main um, concerns amongst vaccine hesitant hesitant parents is safety. While the mRNA science has been around and developed over decades, the mRNA vaccines are new vaccine technology developed for adults. As such, the number of children recruited for vaccine trials are lower than adult numbers. What can you say to reassure parents of the safety of these vaccines for children to date? I think that, you know, importantly, while it's sort of a a new technology, it it isn't in reality, it's it's really built on decades and decades of of research. Um, And so, um, we have to kind of know that and, and feel safe about that. I think in addition, we have given this vaccine to millions and millions of children already, right? So starting with the, that kind of first age of 16 and older, um, you know, now almost a year ago, uh, and then kind of as, as each age has been, has been approved. And so we know in reality so much more about this vaccine in some ways, and you know, we know about a lot of vaccines, but, but it's almost the major vaccine that we've given, given for decades because we have all of these adults and all of these adolescents and all of these children who have been vaccinated. There's also a lot of eyes on this vaccine. So your eyes, my eyes, parents' eyes, the FDA, the CDC, all of these, these groups. And so um, we also do and would know if there were any issues much faster than we might for other vaccines where it could take you know, years to reach the number of you know, millions of, of, of children who have received these vaccines. As a parent, I understand, you know, that our, our kids are the most precious things that we have. And, and sometimes feeling like making a decision to vaccinate is an active decision and making a decision not to vaccinate is, is passive. But in reality, those are both active decisions. And so I truly believe that the pediatrician said that as a parent that the, the way to protect my children and the way that I did protect them was to get them vaccinated. Because I, I believe in the vaccine. I believe, you know, in the safety of it. You know, and I believe in, in the importance that, in the role that it played in, in protecting my children against getting COVID. Thank you for another excellent answer. Um, one of the concerning side effects of the mRNA vaccines has been myocarditis, which seems mm-hmm. to be affecting mostly boys and young adult men between the ages of 16 to 25 years. Could you please comment on this? Have there been any cases of myocarditis in younger children with the mRNA vaccines? And how does this compare to the rates of myocarditis in unvaccinated children with COVID-19? I think, for example, myocarditis is actually a great example of what I was saying, and that 
uh, there were a lot of eyes on the vaccine. This got picked up incredibly quickly and everybody knew about it right away. So that, that, that is a, um, a wonderful example of the vaccine safety surveillance network working. It isn't surprising if we were going to have a, um, uh, a group that might be most at risk of myocarditis for it to be teenagers and to be particularly males versus females, because what we know about viral infections in general is that they can cause myocarditis. We also know that COVID itself infection can cause myocarditis. And when it does, particularly for COVID as well as other viral infections, it is often in teen boys. So that all makes sense um, you know, in this particular it is also really important to know that the risk of, of getting myocarditis after vaccination is actually much rarer than getting myocarditis after a COVID infection. And so again, not getting vaccinated to protect against this, you know, rare, but you know, it is a side effect, potential side effect of vaccination. And instead getting COVID isn't necessarily protecting the adolescent from myocarditis because they can get myocarditis from the infection. And 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 so we and the CDC really believe that the safer thing to do is actually to be vaccinated. That all being said, there was new guidelines that just came out a couple of days ago, where in a time where um, there is not a high risk potentially of, of transmission, so in the in the with the community is having lower rates, the child themselves, the person themselves is not immunocompromised, um, doesn't have a high risk condition, but actually potentially thinking about changing that interval from three weeks for the Pfizer vaccine between the first and second dose to eight weeks actually would decrease the risk of again, the already rare reoccurrence of myocarditis and pericarditis. So that's a, a new change that pediatricians will be, uh, and family practitioners and others will be talking with their, their um, patients about in terms of for kids who are getting that first dose um, and, and you know young adults as well, uh, particularly ones who are male, but also female of, of kind of with the family having that shared decision-making about maybe waiting for eight weeks for that second dose, because it is really primarily with the second dose that they've been seeing um, the myocarditis. We really haven't been seeing in that, that, that younger age child, um, probably because the five to 11 year old dose is actually, as you know, is a third of the dose of the adult dose. And while the side effects, the general kind of fever, fatigue and headache and other things that we see are the same, we see it much less in that younger age group, probably because the dose is less. So we're just seeing less of a kind of reactive inflammatory response to the vaccine itself. The third thing to remember is that while it's not myocarditis, um, there is a, a, a very severe complication to infection called MIS-C, or multi-system inflammatory um, syndrome. Uh, in children, there's a MIS-A, which is the adult version of it. That also um, has pretty profound heart effects as well as um, you know, general body effects. And those kids get very, very sick and end up in the intensive care unit in the hospital. And we do know that vaccination protects against MIS-C. So again, um, you know, I and you know, the, we believe that that's really the safer thing to do when you're trying to protect your child is actually to get them vaccinated. Thank you, really informative answer. Different vaccine doses are needed for different age groups, whereas only one dose is needed for adults. Can you please explain why? Sure. I think, in, you know, in general for, um, for pediatric vaccines and, and for this vaccine in particular, they were trying to find the balance between what was the dose that would give the um, antibody response that you would want to that that to provide protection and what would be the dose that you would have the fewest side effects. That's always sort of the, the balance. 
And so for that five to 11 age group, it was this dose that um, is the 10 micrograms. So it's a third of the dose of the, um, of the adult dose for the Pfizer vaccine, for example. Um, and so again, it's that, that, that balance that they're, they're trying to, to kind of figure out and they sort of do this almost dose de-escalation in the very, very early trials to try and find that, um, that balance. And, and that's it. That's why. For the youngest kids, it's actually an even smaller dose um, down. Um, and, and, you know, we were going to talk about this probably, but, but that may have, that's the thought of potentially why maybe in that two to five, uh, two to four-year-old age group, that the original trials have, didn't show the protection, the blood, the antibody response to that dose that they were expecting. Because in the very early studies, they, they thought that that, that, that um, quantity of, you know, in, the, um, in the vaccine would be enough to get the response and balance that against the fewer side effects. But, but in the trial, it really didn't necessarily show that response that they were expecting. Um, and so that's a little bit why they, they're, they have been talking about and they have been redoing the trial or continuing the trial with the third dose. And that's the day that we're waiting for to be able to see a little bit later in the spring for licensure for that age group, six months to, um, to, uh, to a little under five years. That same dose is the dose that's used for the youngest kids, like the 26 to 23 months. And that dose was fine. They actually... You know, saw what they wanted to see that balance between having antibody response and then having, um, you know, the, the fewer side effects that they would see from the vaccination. Okay, thank you. This is quite a long question, and I will include a transcript, transcript with this episode at some point. In light of the highly publicized, non-peer-reviewed, um, formally published mm -hmm. research released this week entitled Effectiveness of the BNT162B2 or Pfizer vaccine among children 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 years in New York after the emergence of the Omicron variant. What are your thoughts on their findings of the startling loss of vaccine effectiveness against infection and hospitalization in the 5 to 11 year age group in just, in just under two months after a full vaccine course was given? So the effectiveness effectiveness against infection fell from 68% to 12% and against hospitalizations from 100% to 48% in this age group. And it seems to suggest that this could be due to the reduced dose given to the 5 to 11 year age group. And their findings seem to contrast um, with a study that um, was done by the CDC um, entitled Effectiveness of COVID-19 Pfizer um, BioNTech um, mRNA vaccination in preventing COVID-19 associated emergency department and urgent care encounters and hospitalizations among non-immunocompromised children and adolescents, five to 17 years across 10 states. This one was held between April 2021 and January 2022. In that study, they seem to have higher rates of vac vaccine effectiveness um, against ER and urgent care visits of the five to 11 year age group during Omicron, their figures were around 56%. So that's a contrast against the sort of like 12 and 48%, I guess it would be the direct uh, comparison. So what do you feel about those two papers? So in full disclosure, I'm actually an author on that second, on that second paper, because um, our, our group at Columbia um, was part of the, the group authorship of that. So I'm, I'm much more familiar with with the data in the CDC paper. And that paper included states across the US as opposed to only being in New York City. And of course, I'm in New York City. So, um, you know, I, um, I think we are in, in some ways, a, we're a special city in many ways. We're also, you know, a special city just in terms of um, 
we, we seem to kind of uh, uh, have, you always have the infection first. But what I would say is, I think that the important take home points are that in reality, the, the point of the vaccination is not to prevent infection at all, right? It would be great if it did, and early on we thought maybe it would, but many, vac- many vaccines don't. Um, what we were trying to prevent is the, you know, we talk with the big, the, the big serious things, right? We're trying to prevent particularly hospitalizations. Uh, we're trying to really prevent any children from dying of COVID. We also would love to prevent, you know, the ED visits, the urgent care visits where families are, you know, are seeking that kind of care. Um, and, and it's, you know, in some ways less important to prevent the in- infection um, at all if we can kind of prevent these more serious things. And I add Ms. C in that kind of more serious um, piece as well. I think for, um, you know, and, and if we kind of conjure the flu vaccine, right, that's, you know, one thing for flu vaccine, right, we don't necessarily prevent infection always, but we, in children in particular, are kind of preventing those severe outcomes. And I, when I talk to the providers and talking to parents, I think it's important to frame COVID vaccination that, that same way. I think for the 5 to 11, it, it is a, it is a, it's complicated timing because the vaccine was only approved right in that very beginning of, of November. Then, you know, at, at the best case scenario, it's five weeks until a child actually has protection. And then Omicron hit in New York City, you know, around December 18th, right? So there just aren't that many children um, and not that much time to be able to be following those, those kids. And so if you look at the confidence intervals around hospitalization for five to 11, they're very wide in both reports, both the CDC report and the other report. Yeah. And so to me, I, I actually would put a really big asterisk on the kind of protection against hospitalization part and, and not say, you know, that the vaccine doesn't protect against that in, in that age. Children, we know that protects against um, uh, it in the other ages. And, um, but, but talk about really focusing more on the protection against the, you know, emergency room care, the urgent care. And, and I really do trust the data in the CCMWR paper, because I, um, again, was, was part of the team and I know how carefully, um, you know, it was looked at. And I'm not saying that it wasn't the other data, but, but I, I, you know, having been part of that, that process. Um, I, you know, my children are a little bit older, but I would, in, in it, if they were younger and, you know, and they were just kind of being um, vaccinated, I would still vaccinate my child who was that age group. I think it's really an important way to protect them again against what you know is on the rarer side but can be very very serious side effects of, of infection against COVID. So I know it's complicated talking to patients um, but I think it is important that we do um, have the message for patients that really kind of un, unpacks this for them in that way. It is possible again that the that going down as you mentioned that that dose right that they're trying to get that balance between effectiveness um, and side effects that it might have been a little bit, um, I don't know if it's been too low, maybe you know, if it's been higher, it's hard to, it, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, right? To sort of say mm-hmm. what it could or should have been. I think it's also important to note that um, it, in general, for almost every vaccine that we have, you know, it's a series where you're giving one dose, another dose, relatively close together, and, and you need that booster, right? So all childhood vaccinations generally tend to come in groupings of one or two or three or sometimes even four that are spaced apart. So it's also not surprising. And I think any vaccine person would have said that we we never thought that kind of two doses would be it, right? Especially two doses so close together. We were in, 
we were in a similar pandemic. And so giving them close together makes sense for getting that protection as fast as possible. But for that long-term protection, it actually makes sense, right? That you really do need that, that booster, right? You really do need more of that, that time. We also know that it is a tricky virus, as many viruses are, including flu. And, you know, it's, it's a you know, job, so to speak, is to mutate, right? And to become variants and to try to evade the immune system. Um, and, and Omicron in particular, again, was, was doing a, a very good job of, of being infectious and passing even among people who were vaccinated, but was milder for the most part. You know, not, there are unfortunately people who got quite sick from it. Um, and so again, I wouldn't, it would take all of this in, in perspective and, and not sort of say no one should, you know, the, the message is not that not to get vaccinated. The message is, is to get vaccinated and still also realize that we have to, you know, do all the things that have kept us safe, you know, over, um, over time and kind of use, um, you know, common sense, particularly when transition is high in terms of social distancing, masking, other things. And when, and when rates are low, you know, kind of being able to, um, you know, back off on some of, of those things, because at that point, you know, vaccination will be enough kind of when rates are low. And then when it's high, we need to kind of add these other measures back in. Very good points again. And I would like to underline, even with that um, new paper, they said vaccination protected against serious disease and, and and the rate um, um, of hospitalization I think which you compare with, with your ER and urgent care rates was similar um, into uh, uh, in that age group with those children so we're really nearly run out of time so I've just got one last question I've saved the toughest till last COVID's effect <laughs> on children is resulting in negative outcomes that to me are shockingly disconcerting Hypothetically speaking, if these staggering outcomes on one of our most vulnerable se segments of the population, children, were caused by something other than COVID, would the politicians and public in general be reacting in the same manner? In other words, has the polarising effect of COVID on our society desensitised us to the fact that 12.3 million children in the US have been infected by COVID and that two to three children in the US continue to die each day from COVID-19? Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent question. I, I started to actually frame it in relation to, to flu because that's something that people think about, right? They're, 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 we vaccine against flu, we have protection against flu, e even though in reality, at the moment right now, there's actually more COVID deaths than there, ha there are in even the, the worst flu death seasons. And so I think that if we can really be, be you know, depoliticized, depolarized, and just think of you know, how best we protect children from this, I think that, um, you know, that, that is the place that, that we, you know, that we ultimately do need to be because um, I'm, you know, I, as many people think that this, that when we move from the pandemic, COVID becomes endemic. What does that mean? It means it becomes, it, it is here to, to stay, right? There's going to be ebbs and flows and peaks and it will come back down, but we need to kind of get into a, a, a place where, um, we are protecting our children, we're protecting ourselves, like our families, we're protecting our, our older loved ones. Um, and when the rates are going up, we're kind of putting all the stuff in place that we need to. And then, you know, rates are coming down, we're kind of de-implementing de and, and finding that, um, that, that balance, but also not saying that, um, that COVID isn't, isn't a risk, right? We know it is a risk. We know what we have, I don't even know how, you probably have the stats on it. It's almost you know, over 900,000, almost a million people in the US alone have died of COVID. Um, and there's almost a thousand children who have died. That, that, that is a lot, right? That one death is one death too many. And that's almost a million 
you know, adults and or people and almost a thousand children, too many who have died, um, I know, of, of this disease. And, and I'm, I'm a vaccine researcher, so obviously I believe in vaccination, but even if I was not any of those things, um, to me, you know, really the importance and the way we get out of this is still vaccination, um, as well as kind of all of the common sense and social distancing and other things that we need to do. Um, and really, again, come together as a society, both in the U.S. and around you know, the world, in a world global society, right, to, to kind of protect our children and, and protect, um, protect each other. Thank you so much, um, Professor Melissa Sockwell, for joining us today. Um, this has been a fantastic interview. Um, thank you for all the work you do to keep, keep children safe, particularly during the pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us to listen to our wonderful interview with Professor Melissa Stockwell. Please join us next week for episode five, Global Vaccine Equity and the Effects of the Pandemic on Children, with Professor Anna Banerjee, Infectious Disease Specialist and Pediatrician based at the University of Toronto in Canada, and Mr. David Morley, President and CEO of UNICEF Canada. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.